everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. We have a special guest today. I know that I don't get to talk about or we don't get to talk about basic science research enough. And it's just the consequence of having a podcast once a week. All these new, exciting, interesting findings come out. And to my own discredit, some of the basic science that helps inform clinical research probably gets put to the side more than it should. Well, today I want to introduce a guest, uh, Dr. David Manassa. David Manassa is at uh, the Queen's College, University of Oxford. He is a teacher, a researcher. He focuses on human and neurodevelopment. And he has recently published a paper on a cell type that we don't necessarily always talk about, which is the microglia. Um, and I'm going to ask him to talk about why the microglia are important in autism. But first, I wanted to introduce Dr. David Massa. And David, how did you get involved in autism research? What brought you to this field? Um, thank you very much, Alicia, for this uh, lovely introduction. Uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk to uh, the Autism Science Foundation and um, uh, really uh, thank you. Uh, so um, I got into autism research uh because of two reasons. So um, a personal reason, uh, which has driven me down the path of neuroscience in general and the field of autism, and that's because of a, a family member who's got autism. Um, and uh, the second reason um, is uh, uh, my sort of research background has always been around uh, uh, trying to identify uh, what leads to uh, uh, pathology in the context of autism spectrum disorders. And I remember when I gave the podcast back in 2016, uh, I was looking at brain tissues from individuals with autism in the adult, essentially adults. Um, they were post-mortem tissues, and I gave the podcast for the Autism Science Foundation, and it was looking at olfactory differences uh, between autism and controls, and how epilepsy can contribute, or what's the role of epilepsy in these uh, situations? Um, is it the autism that has a specific pathological signature, or is it when the epilepsy is added, we, we see something different, and so on? And we were really able then to identify within the olfactory domain what really leads, uh, what, what we see, what was specific to autism versus what wasn't. And, um, and then I kept in a sort of... Uh, being involved in that area, but I wanted to go further. Um, I didn't want to look only at the adult. I wanted to see how things develop. And then I moved to uh, various universities around the UK and abroad, and I started looking at factors during pregnancy that led to changes in how the brain develops. And of course, we know that once the brain development's altered, then we may get a neurodevelopmental disorder. It doesn't have to be always autism. Uh, it can be uh, you know, something I'll touch upon later, a wide range that we can kind of struggle sometimes to pinpoint um, uh, that specificity, essentially. So, but, so I looked very broadly on two, uh, into two factors. One of them was the contribution of the uh, low oxygen presence in the mother um, and how that affected uh, brain development. And for these types of uh, studies, um, uh, we were looking at rodents, informed by, of course, epidemiological data. But that was essentially the angle we took, which is, again, something I'll mention later on, 
quite different to the human, but very informative. Um, and the second factor that I looked at, so first one was low oxygen in the mother, and the second one was the role of specific uh, uh, immune substances that cross the placental barrier also during pregnancy and also in the rodent and lead to changes in the brain. And these were specifically against synaptic uh, proteins. Um, and then once I looked at these, it's an extensive introduction, but it's necessary because in all of these tissues, I always saw that the microglia were higher in number, were uh, of a specific sort of morphology. They were expressing disease-related uh, uh, sort of markers, um, and we, we didn't quite know what they were doing. So then I thought, okay, now is a good time to look at the basic biology of these cells. And then I moved to Southampton on a uh, postdoctoral appointment, and I worked on uh, collecting tissues over the whole uh, li human lifespan. Because again, I, I really, I, this is very sort of close to my heart, this area. So uh, I wanted to look on at human tissues. And this is where the donations were really important. So we collected multiple samples. I'll touch upon these later. And essentially profiled how microglia develop in the human frontal lobe. And how does that profiling essentially, where do they go first? How do they expand? How do they interact with the brain environment? And uh, how do they uh, settle, become steady, or, and, and then essentially die? So that's kind of the whole human lifespan from the third week of pregnancy all the way to 75 years of age. So um, it was a big effort, but it was necessary. So this is where now we're kind of moving back after this paper into the field of, okay, right, so now how, how does that help us explain what happens in autism? Okay. That was great. Thank you. I loved how there was a story. So sometimes I interview researchers who just say, well, this is my field of study. The microglia is my field of study. I'm studying micro, which is great because we could use, incorporate people who from different levels, but you have a real story here, right? You yeah. have, you looked at it in, in rodent models. You were looking at gene and gene or gene environment interaction. You saw that these type of cells were upregulated and you wanted to know why. So I'm I'm thrilled that you that you let us in on that because it gives a, a real context about why the microglia are important. Yeah. So tell us about the microglia. We talk a lot about cell communication and neurons and um, the neurochemicals and how cells communicate, but we rarely talk about the microglia, but we need to. So what what are they? Yeah. So importantly, first, again, uh, you uh, touched upon that and very important area and a uh, question sort of Alicia, which is like, um, we look at neuronal communication. What about other cells? We have to remember that neurons are not uh, self-standing. They are very important cells. So injury to the neurons is dramatic in humans and we can't just get them back. They get produced at a specific critical window during development. And But underlying all of that are helpful cells that we call the glue of the brain. And that's been mentioned in the literature before. Um, and these include your glial or glial cells. Now, Part of that big category are uh, three cell types. One of them is called an oligodendrocyte, and that creates myelin, which means creates helpful uh, long-range connections in the brain. So we need that so that an information is processed fast and accurately, and then in, in split, you know, milliseconds. Um, the second type of cell is called uh, an astrocyte, and that is also 
an interesting allele cell type. And this is involved in it supporting the um, pH regulation around these neurons. So they can be in an environment that is uh, 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 unbuffered, is what, we, what we'd say. Um, and then they also are uh, uh, glutamate uh, mops. So any extra glutamate, which is an important neurotransmitter, it's our most potent excitatory neurotransmitter, is supposed to be after the neuronal communication has happened to be mopped out or taken away by these astrocytes. So very important. Now, the third one is the microglia. I'll pause a second here because it's the only cell type in the brain that ends up in the brain, but doesn't derive from a brain progenitor. So it will come from the outside of the brain, from a part of the that's attached to the embryo called the yolk sac. And then once the brain starts developing, then it receives cues from the brain to migrate and enter, and it needs the circulatory system for that. And then it ends up in the brain. But very important to note that these microglia are glial cells overall, but they're not from the same progenitor as neurons, astrocytes, and oligodendrocytes. So very different lineage. Why is that important? Um, it's not uh, in itself, it, it, it kind of resolved um, uh, uh, decades and decades of uh, unknowns about what these cells, where do they come from? So initially there were lots of speculation about them coming from, you know, from inside the brain and others that suggested they came from outside the brain. Anyway, this is all resolved now. Important to note, they are part of the glial cell type, uh, cell types or population, but they are uh, not from the same progenitor or origin. Okay. So they come from elsewhere. So they are, what are they? So they are uh, what we call macrophages of the brain, which means that they are uh, uh, the janitors. Okay, so that's the closest human uh, function. So they clear up the mess. They clear up um, any death. Uh, they can clear up anything that's not needed. So neurons have to grow and develop uh, synapses and so on in a good environment, and it has to be clean. So that's what microglia do. So one, they are the macrophages of the brain, and the process by which they clear is called phagocytosis. Some technical words, if you are interested. Um, they live in the brain, um, these cells, and they perform several functions. I will split the functions into two categories, during the brain development phase, but also in the adult, okay? During the brain development phase, microglia do several things. One, they participate in the formation of the white matter. And a really good example on this is a study published from America uh, by the uh, Stephen Nocter group on uh, a mutation in a specific receptor that's microglial. And I recommend everybody look up that story when you've got the chance called the story of the boy who has a missing brain cell type. And it's uh, lots of nice articles around this that are non-specialized. Um, and it shows how important these cells are, microglia, during that phase of development. If you lack that receptor and the brain essentially does not have microglia, the boy essentially had problems in the formation of the white matter, a structure that's very important in brain communication called the corpus callosum. So that wasn't formed properly. Another area was a warped cerebellum, so not fully developed and so on. So as you can already start seeing, so these are all relevant areas in the context of autism that because I, we know they are affected. So that is uh, one function during brain development. And the second one is the helpful role of 
mediating the positioning of certain neurons, their inhibitory neurons within the cortex. So as the cortex or part of the brain that's important for cognition develops, then uh, the microglia are guiding molecule, uh, guiding cells, okay? So they will help in the positioning of these inhibitory cells. And it's important that they do so. Otherwise, again, a very topical area in autism is the imbalance between excitation and inhibition. So we really need them to be there in the right place. Now, postnatally, and I'll keep this very short, many functions, there are the immune cells that survey the brain, means that they monitor the environment um, and keep track of essentially what's going on to try and protect the neurons and uh, clearing synapses. And that's also another topical area, synaptic pruning, and that's a healthy role. Okay, so it's just an area where in autism, for example, we'll see a higher number of synapses compared to controls. And microglia are very helpful in clearing in the normal brain uh, synapses that we don't need postnatally and keep that steady. And other, fun yeah, I think that's that's pretty much summarizes an extensive introduction. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's great. And you also um, answered the question, why are they relevant to autism? So the fact that they respond to different environmental factors um, the fact that they help shape the way brain cells connect with each other. Absolutely. Is there any direct evidence? And what is that direct evidence that, that they're involved in autism? Yeah. So I will mention uh, uh, a couple of studies, some of them based on our own findings uh, and, and some based on other papers. So uh, something I mentioned earlier. So if you look at the postmortem uh, tissue from individuals with autism, be it in the frontal lobe area, so prefrontal cortex, cingulate gyrus, and so on, the hippocampus, we always see that the microglia in autism versus controls are higher in number and uh, they are of uh, changed morphology, which isn't you know, what you typically see in the controls. And they express markers that are typically associated with the disease context. Okay, so it's these three main findings, and these are relatively consistent in the literature. Another important uh, study uh, that comes from the Crickstein lab, or came from the Crickstein lab in the US, I think UCSF, uh, that was the first uh, uh, the study that used postmortem tissues, but looked at the gene signature between autism and controls and also the contribution of epilepsy. Wonderful study. And it really found that the molecular state of microglia and certain neurons in the brain that are in layer two of the cortex have a very strong disease association. So they have a different signature of genes compared to controls. And it was really these two populations of cells, the neurons of layer two and also the microglia. So that was one of the uh, a few studies that really did a fantastic job in um, tell, showing us that, yes, it is in these areas of the uh, microglia are directly uh, implicated. You took another look at the microglia. As we all know, autism doesn't originate at some age when you start to see symptoms. It starts during pregnancy, maybe before pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about, what, what was the plan here? You studied the development yeah. of the microglia throughout the lifespan or throughout at least some of the lifespan. And how did you do that? You use tissue. So yeah. tell me how that worked and why tissue is so important to understand these questions. Absolutely. So um, to uh, hone in again on uh, what I mentioned earlier at the start, um, 
I was interested in these microglial cells because they came up as part of the pathology in many of the studies I've done, be it the uh, rodent models or the human tissues in the adults. So higher in numbers uh, of a specific shape and, or morphology and a difference in the gene signature consistent with uh, uh, many other studies. So then the plan was to start looking at how these cells develop in the developing cortex. Um, and uh, uh, for that, um, uh, I will mention this one quote uh and it's it's not a quote it's like um a statement that i always uh, uh i really like it and it was from semmelweis university in hungary uh which was part of the collaboration and and the statement goes as such there's a uh, there's a shape of a human, um, and it's a statue, and um, and it says underneath, "Those who have passed away inform the living." And 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 I think this is a very strong message. So I love that statement. And um, uh, essentially, the undertones are: yes, I will elaborate on that. Those who have passed away inform the living and will help us identify mechanisms needed for the prevention or treatment of disease. So that will be my extended version. So this is the really important area of post-mortem uh, collections and uh, tissues are extremely important. It's a tough, you know, it's not easy, uh, but, but but that is, I think, uh, you can never look at the brain at this level of detail, well, at least not yet. Maybe with the uh, technological advances, things will change. But for the time being, I think we really still depend on tissues that are directly from the patients to help us again uh, identify mechanisms needed for prevention or the treatment of disease. Okay. So then the postmortem tissue that was used here, again, consistent with my approach needing to look at how these microglia arrive to the brain, where do they go, how do they interact with the environment, and so on. Uh, I collected as part of an international collaboration between various brain banks in the UK and abroad, about 12 of them, I think, uh, and over a period of uh, five years, um, tissues that are consented either from uh, uh, the donors themselves or their families' consent uh, was sought, and the tissues, importantly, were made available for research. Now, I'll split that into two. The postnatal, of course, that's... Um, slightly, uh, well, I wouldn't say straightforward, but there were roots for that that are already established. But um, luckily for us in the UK, uh, there's a collection uh, at the uh, in Newcastle in London and a resource fantastic called the Human Developmental Biology Resource that's funded by the MRC and the Wellcome Trust. And uh, they've been collecting um, samples from elective terminations, essentially, from the third week of gestation up to the 20-week uh, period, which is the legal limit here in this country. If you get time to look at the paper, uh, I recommend looking at the graphical abstract because that summarizes the, in the individual sort of stages in human uh, development um, uh, and aging. Uh, and uh, they were essentially collected uh, by week of gestation or every couple of weeks and wherever possible were uh, sex matched as well so that we look at these um, uh, differences too. Um, the postnatal age, particularly during the children slash childhood or adolescence phases, um, we've got a lot, most of our myelination. So connections between areas, very important. Myelination as a process starts in the later part of gestation, which is about um, 28 weeks. So that's when you've got your the appearance of your myelinating cells, but they don't start doing their work till a few weeks later. And then most of the process is uh, postnatal. And during that period, we know 
as I mentioned earlier, microglia track the white matter, they help in forming it. So we expect that part of that gap and that abstract for childhood and adolescence, we don't know what it looks like. So I kept it intentionally uh, absent. So I put a gray uh, line on that um, and uh, because we don't know what's, what we're going to see. So that's a very exciting uh, aspect. ASF is completely in support of the donation of uh, for families who who if there's a loved one in the family that passes away we are yeah. absolutely in support of this so we hope that everyone learns more at autismbrainnet.org this isn't this podcast isn't a isn't a pitch to go out and donate brain it's a pitch yeah. to learn more about it as well so you can understand the process and you can understand why it's important but why it's important is essentially because it allows studies like this that help families with autism. And we'll yeah. talk about how this study may exactly um, lead to other um, scientific discoveries um, down the road. While this study didn't look specifically at microglia in people with autism, you gave some great uh, you gave some great points about why they're relevant for the features associated with autism and neurodevelopmental disorders. So how, how could they? So you talked about different brain regions, um, especially the ones that you specifically targeted and then also development. So can yeah. you take that around now to say, okay, what, how, what processes are they related to that's, that's relevant for autism? Absolutely. So uh, I'll, I'll mention uh, about this study. It was done in controls, so as much as possible. So we have established essentially, uh, along with a team of other researchers from the Diego uh, Gomez Nicola lab, I have to acknowledge that, of course. Um, so it was a team of us and we identified the microglial population arrives to the brain. Um, uh, how does it expand? Um, expansion, we mean by that, like uh, uh, division of cells that leads to an increase in numbers. And then how does this gene signature underlying that expansion also change? And then uh, uh, that's done over life. So, and how does the population itself get what we call a, a refinement uh, phase or undergoes a refinement phase, uh, which means that it doesn't all like we see in most and many other uh, situations development. So for example, in neurogenesis, you see an increase in the numbers of neurons. These are your stem cells, sorry, not the neurons, but the stem cells. Um, and we produce a lot more than we need. And then at some stage, we have a process, a normal process of cell death that we need to get rid of what we've overproduced because we don't need them all. And the same happens with synapses. And that's also another uh, area. So within the microglia fields, so, uh, and, and, and this specific uh, uh, paper, we looked at how does the population expand and how does it get refined and how does it reach this stable, steady state uh, after it's arrived in the brain and has done you know, its expansion phase and participation in various processes. So then um, to keep it consistent with the areas that are of relevance um, to autism, and that's essentially, so was my call, um, I looked at the frontal lobe, uh, which is essentially very important for cognitive functions. And the areas that typically arise from the frontal lobe are your cingulate areas, which are involved in emotional processing and behavioral regulation, the prefrontal cortex, the cognitive control functions, essentially, and social communication. And then also uh, other parts of the frontal lobe that are involved 
golden language and management of higher level executive functions. What we mean by higher level executive functions is capacity to plan, organize, initiate, self-monitor and control responses in order to achieve a goal. So all of these areas, so of course, we focused on the uh, prefrontal uh, cortex, uh, but one needs to appreciate the complexity. So we get whole embryos. We look at the part that generates the cortex, but that part is going to generate all of the cortex, so frontal, occipital. So we really have to be very good with the anatomy to try and map the structure as it changes and develops, let alone and and gets bigger and you know and and uh, matures and so on. And what happens to the microglial population? So there are challenges associated with that. But importantly, I'm very proud to say that we managed to keep it consistent within the prefrontal cortex as much as possible uh, throughout the lifespan study. And we identified essentially uh, in the control situation, what are the important windows where the microglial population changes its profile. So what that means is when does it go up in number and then go down in numbers again, and then and so on. So you'll see if you look at the press release that was issued by the University of Southampton, uh, it, it colonizes the brain in, in, a, in a pattern of waves. And these waves are essentially uh, correlated with whatever is happening from a neurodevelopmental de perspective. So the formation, say, of the cortical plate, the expansion of another structure in humans that's well elaborated called the subplate. So it just sort of undulates or forms waves in a pattern that we didn't quite expect. And now the step would be, now we've looked at these sort of um, uh, uh, windows and we've identified what the pattern of these microglia is in the control situation. Now we're going to start looking a bit further than that because that's the process relevant to the cell itself. And I put these in the context of what's happening, you know, developmentally. Now, what I need to start doing now is join the dots. Okay, so how is it actually interacting with the cortical plate, which is going to generate our cortex? How is it actually interacting? Why is it that there is this change when this human uh, elaborate structure called the subplate, that is an area where you get lots of axons forming and so on, that the population changes its profile? Why is it that after birth that happens? It's the expansion of the synapses. Is that part of it? So that's another, uh, you know, it's a lifetime essentially job to try and look at how the interaction happens. Now, how do we relate that directly to autism? What we can do is split it into two essentially categories. The early category, that's the basic science that, as you said, Alicia, will inform uh, the um, clinical research. And that's by first looking at more functional models to try and dissect out that interaction between microglia, um, say at that first window we identified in the paper, so early in development. So we call that the transition between embryonic and fetal life, so about 10 weeks. Okay, that's the first dramatic change in the population be behavior or pattern. So we look at that, create, we have our functional model based on tissue donations. We can do that in the lab. And then we can start by looking at the cues and the signals and so on. And then we can do certain things. We can block the microglia and see what's happening structurally and so on. So lots of things and very exciting that we can do on this level. And that will inform us these simple experiments uh, based on, of course, our tissue availability um, um, 
what, how, uh, as to how microglia shape neurodevelopment. And if we block a process, does it actually lead to a change in that part of the brain that we assumed the population is helping develop? Okay. So, and, and, and that's, uh, that's very relevant because we, that's an issue that's really important in the context of autism and the wider um, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders area. And these are, how does this phenotypic specificity arise? Uh, so we don't know. So any change that we can find is happening due to these microglia, great. Then that's kind of like already going in the right direction. Now, the other aspect, and that's something I stress on, that is, again, the postmortem donations uh, in the adult, because what we don't know now is what drives this increase in microglial numbers that we see in the tissues. The uh, hypothesis is that it is potentially driven by earlier uh, sort of um, changes uh, or earlier um, triggers. Uh, that means during development, but we don't know that. So we have to kind of try and start profiling how does this turnover of cells and you know their, their their numbers, what they're expressing, and so on? So we have to do a bit more work on that, and that's really unknown for the time being. So and that is coming from the postmortem tissues um, uh, from uh, autism uh, spectrum uh, individuals. What was kind of the evolution, for lack of a better word, kind of the development of some of these microglial processes? across the time frame that you looked at, which these time, I want to make sure everyone understands, he looked at specifically critical periods in the brain that we think are critical for the development of uh, biological features associated with autism, how exactly. cells connect, how um, they project to different parts of the brain, how cells form, how they divide, things like that. So I'll let you handle. Yeah, great. So I'll mention sort of some of the key findings. So over time, I highly recommend that essentially if uh, anyone gets the time to look at that graphical abstract, because it really shows these undulations and uh, it gives you the key messages in literally a snapshot. Um, and, and it's funny because it takes five years to get to this point, but it's like done in like an hour. And then you can see uh, the profile. So yes, thank you, Alicia, for highlighting that. So uh, important uh, 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 take home messages, uh, arrival of, of microglia to the brain, um, uh, the frontal part of the brain or the brain, the part that generates the cortex. Um, uh, that is uh, early uh, fourth post-conceptional week or the fourth week of pregnancy. And that is with the onset of circulation. So we identified that. Then the first change that's dramatic happens between nine to 11 uh, uh, weeks of pregnancy. And that is when you've got the formation of the part that's just going to generate the cortex called the cortical plate. Uh, so that was the second uh, window. The third one is a window um, uh, that is around 13 to 15 weeks. And that is an important window uh, relevant to the formation of white matter tracts through the expansion of specific area in the human that gets quite elaborate that we don't see in the uh, rodent quite as dramatically called the subplate. So that was our third change. And the fourth one is postnatally around the area of infancy uh, and uh, early childhood. Now, the characteristic pattern that the microglia follow in these undulations uh, are typically, they are every increase in number is preceded predictably by an increase in proliferation, which means an increase in cell division. Okay, so the peak in cell division almost by a week 
you start seeing the increase in numbers. So that's quite interesting. There's a prediction there, which kind of you expect. An increase in proliferation or cell division will lead to an increase in numbers in the following week or the following days. And then the time that we see um, a, a trough or a, a dip in the peak, again, I mentioned un undulations. So you've got peaks and troughs. So the moment you see these troughs or dips in the undulations or in the wave, um, uh, then that's due to cell death. And we kind of described that as well. And so there's a process of clearing or dying of microglia that is required um, uh, to be able to keep the population uh, in check in the context of what's happening developmentally. Again, we so we looked very specifically at the characteristics of the population itself, and now we're giving it more context. So the space itself was very important, but we needed to characterize what's happening to the cells themselves. And, and then we go on further now to start looking at the interaction with the landscape. And one additional thing I'll mention, and that's something Alicia highlighted, is the change in um, uh, the shape of the cells as well. So, um, and the gene signature of microglia. So the most important uh, sort of change in the gene signature, again, happens at that time when the cortex is being generated or starts being generated. So that first window, which is the transition between embryonic and fetal life at about nine to 11 weeks of pregnancy, that's the most important one. So that's where we see the highest change in terms of the gene signature, in terms of the numbers, in terms of the um, ability to divide and so on. Now, in terms of the shape of the cells, so microglia are quite interesting. So they're very heterogeneous in human development. Uh, they're migrating to get to the right layer, uh, but they've come from outside the brain. So they're entering the brain, so they're going to have a specific shape. And if you look at the supplementary, you can appreciate all these differences in shape, essentially, uh, in, that, in, in our paper. And they can have a round shape. They can have a, a, a kind of a, a leading process that helps them migrate into the brain. So they look more like a, a, a round cell with a, a process sticking out towards where they're trying to get to. Um, uh, and they get, get what we call a, a ramified shape, which is essentially the mature adult form of these uh, microglia, which is they've got lots of processes. They almost look like they look like stars, but I have to be careful because astrocytes are supposed to look more like stars. But I think they also microglia sort of do as well. Um, so and there's much more than that. There are intermediate phenotypes or shapes of microglia. So the my morphological or the shape diversity is huge in humans during the development developmental stage, um, stages. And uh, that's something we don't necessarily discuss at length in our paper. We highlight it, um, uh, but there'll be some follow-ups on that uh, eventually. And of course, underlying a change's shape is potentially also a difference in the um, gene signature as well and so on. What would you like families, if you had, you know, maybe a few sentences to say what you want people to know who aren't science, who you know, who aren't basic scientists to know about yeah. this study and the role of the microglia in autism. What yeah. would you tell them? 
Yeah. Well, first, I'd like to say thank you, because I was fortunate to work uh, with uh, many of these families uh, when I was doing my PhD here in Oxford. And um, uh, uh, without the donations, uh, uh, we, we couldn't, we need them. So it's super important. And uh, I'm really grateful. And I just want to say thank you for uh, 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 putting uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the tissues forward and, and then donating tissues. That's really, really important. And the second uh, point is um, um, what what I've done uh, with the team of researchers is identify these important windows, but we're still really, uh, you know, at the start of the journey that needed to be done. And it, it, it took us a, a while and now it's done. It's a map. So now we're going to start by dissecting essentially how these microglia work with the environment and how they can lead to a change in the environment that may predict uh, a neurodevelopmental disorder, one of which could be, of course, autism. And the important thing is, as soon as we start looking in that direction, that what we're attempting to do is to identify how these um, uh, cells can be tamed if they are awry and or if they go awry, uh, how they can, uh, how we can use them uh, for a therapy uh, or for prevention. So as you know, the brain is expanding with autism, it's quite a, um, it's a fascinating area. And I keep thinking of uh, what we tend to see uh, uh, structurally in terms of differences. And often you'll have the synapses that are changing and and that's local communication between neurons and uh, the myelin or the long grain connections that are also affected and both of these are inherently linked with this microglia so i think i just want to say to the uh, families that the the future is is very promising and uh, we're now uh, you know moving in the sort of uh, right uh, uh, not the right direction but in the you know in the right direction uh, on the back of this paper uh, so um, yeah does that answer much of that was great, but yeah. <laughs> it does. Thank you. Um, I asked a lot of questions. Um, I they, I asked very broad answers uh, or asked very broad questions. So um, I got great answers. But is there anything else that you want that I didn't touch on or that we didn't touch on because the questions weren't kind of structured that way? If people are interested, of course, and uh, please get in touch. So I think it's important that uh, my details are um, available somewhere so that if families or individuals are interested, they can get in touch directly. I think that's the that's an important area. Otherwise, everything's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So thank you, Dr. Manasa. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing this work in autism research um, and all that you do for families. Um, and thank you for at least being on this podcast at the very least. So um, I will add the graphical abstract to the ASF podcast summary um, and also link the, the article. Um, not, yeah. I'll, I'll link to the PubMed link so people yeah. can know the article that, I, that we're Perfect. referring to. So. And, and I'm really more than happy if anybody's interested and wants to, uh, you know, if people want to get in touch, please do. I'm okay. very and very helpful so you so, absolutely are <laughs> you absolutely so are so okay thanks a lot for the thank opportunity. you so much take care have a lovely weekend